Yo, what up? Welcome to episode two. It's Rav. This is Ravi. All right. Now, today we're going to get right into it. Um, we're going to be handling a lot of different topics regarding, we'll follow up from the public reactions, um, mostly looking at a lot of theories of, you know, what we should do to solve this whole systemic racism issue. Yeah. Um, it's a very deep and complex idea, but we kind of believe that we found the first layer, and I think, you know, this is kind of where we want to start pulling it back. So, first off, I guess really we can look at the prison industrial complex. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, um... It's a pretty, it's a relatively simple idea at first. I mean, it's completely new to me, but, you know, after a lot of good um, research and I guess right. kind of delving ourselves into this idea, we're kind of starting to see where it has connections to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of time this week, you know, doing this, this research and it's been an experience, obviously, we're educating ourselves and it feels great and just going to be sharing a lot of the stuff that we learned this week on today's episode. And so we're just going to start right at the top, you know, just describing what the prison industrial complex is. And so um, as a definition, the prison industrial complex is that relationship between some of the larger corporations in the United States that control, you know, the larger portion of the economy and their relationship with the prison justice system, essentially. And I think when we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're talking more of how it's profitable for some of these organizations and some of these big companies for more prisoners to be going to prison and for more prisons to be built. And I guess in a way that that perpetuates this idea of more people ending up in prison for, I guess, crimes that they A, didn't commit possibly or B, just, you know, spending a lot more time in the system than, than they need to. You know, mm. we talk about situations like minimum sentences and you know, pe- people being forced to take plea bargains instead of going to trial and potentially winning a trial, right? Like people just yeah. settle for a plea because the chances of avoiding a conviction after going to trial are very slim, you know? Mm-hmm. So we start looking at this huge thing, right? And it's it's a big beast, <laughs> you know, to say the least. And the way it works essentially is these private uh, corporations are, well, they get contracts from, the federal government right yep. to for construction of these prisons you know we're talking about how the field of architecture for example is talking you know architects are considering prison development to be like a new market altogether you know like yeah. <laughs> them talking about how it's become very profitable i mean there's there's more <clears throat> excuse me there's you know plenty of other contracts too i mean mm-hmm. not even just an architect right, like right. you know there's private companies that provide health care for mm-hmm. prisoners and right. you know they feed them mm-hmm. and whether it be maybe even their their bedding you know plenty of like everything right. that runs a prison is mostly run by a lot of these private corporations that all have their own like you know interests mm-hmm. at right. that point yeah. right and you know we, we were talking about some of the things like prison labor you know prison labor is like a really yeah yeah really big thing and um what I thought was interesting is that when we when we were speaking about it, we we discovered that, in the truest sense, prison labor isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, and, you know, it's, it's really not. Yeah, right. Like when you think about an idea of these corporations coming in to the prison system and allowing you know prisoners to work and better the society, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. You know, spend time doing something else rather than just sitting in the cell. If you want to look at it that way, potentially earning an income that they can use you know, to buy time on the phone for them to talk to their relatives, you know, that kind of stuff. It looks like a pretty good system. You know? Yeah. Oh, I mean, on the on the outside looking at it. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> of course. Like, we can't speak to the conditions that most of these prisoners have to endure, you know, when, when they're under 
when you when they're in the system but for the most part it looks like a pretty good system and it's marketed that way anyway right Mm. But I think when we start to hear people, you know, over the last couple of days, we've been noticing that a lot of Black Lives Matter activists have gone against and trying to expose this whole prison industrial complex. And so shedding light on it so people understand. It's not that they necessarily disagree with some of the smaller things like prison labor or the Mm -hmm. fact that these contracts are given to the private sector. You know, like I don't think that's necessarily the problem. I think the problem is when you start to establish this uh, conflict of interest mm-hmm. between the people that are running these said private, you know, companies and organizations mm-hmm. and how, you know, of course, it's profitable for them, for them to have more prisoners coming into the system and yeah. more prisons be built. So then when because of that conflict of interest, it seemed to be the same people lobbying, I guess. Yeah. For, mm-hmm. for, for laws like, you know, the war on crime, for mm-hmm. example, that ends up you know, putting a lot of people in prison for things that we, we you wouldn't consider to be a crime, you know. You know, when we're researching, we discover that one of the big things that happens is that a lot of times people that are battling, like, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, and, and homelessness, that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Social issues that you, you wouldn't blame on the victim, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. clearly these people are in need of help, but they, it's misconstrued as crime you know yeah and, no, that's and, very true right it's, and and because of that like they end up spending time in prison for something that isn't a crime but because we've given it that blanket term and i guess through our discussion of the mm-hmm. private uh, i mean the prison industrial complex we've kind of established this question in our minds and it's like what what does it mean what like what is crime right like the definition yeah. of crime has become a little murky over the last couple of days for us yeah no of yeah. course i mean it's gone <clears throat> it's personally for me it's gone really broad mm-hmm. and the way that I've kind of viewed it in, in my own in my own research is that I've kind of tried to look at, you know, first off, who defines that term? Right. And, you know, it's it's not really quite society that defines that term. It's it's laws. Mm-hmm. And then you start to get into the idea that, OK, well, who determines these laws or who determines what law and order looks like for the people? Right. So this kind of sent me down like the rabbit hole, of like the history of the police. Right. Mm-hmm. Because these are the people that, you know, enforce the laws. And I mean, it's. I mean, if you want to look at, I guess, the people who put laws into place, you could look straight up to government and then, you know, you can go back and then look for Abraham Lincoln, look for, you know, Woodrow Wilson, you you know, all these different people. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of have to look at where that connection between the the government and the people directly, you know, ties. And most of the time, I guess, well, one way you could look at it is through law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. So what the, the research, like what it kind of led me to was this image that, you know, police started off as this patrol right mm-hmm. back in like early 1800s they start off by doing day and night patrol and you know most of the time it was volunteers it was mm-hmm. whether it was people that were punished and they said hey you have to monitor this street or monitor this area for this you know certain amount of time it started to turn into this idea where you know the businesses started to require some form of quote-unquote muscle i guess you can call it that right and they needed this they needed some type of established corporation or or industry to maintain their workers because as we've all seen in school you've kind of seen that the worker the working class and the and the elite you know the business elite there's this constant like you know struggle between the two like oh we have terrible working conditions like oh well you guys need to do something about it because you guys have the money and they'll be like no you know we're making money by not giving you good conditions that's the whole point so in this you know relationship they started to require 
some form of, I guess, you know, muscle to handle those strikes and riots and this, that, Mm -hmm. and the third. Mm -hmm. And around the 1830s is when municipal police departments actually started to be put in place to handle urbanization. And urbanization is the concept to where, you know, urban areas just start getting bigger out of nowhere. Also, like, it's like a massive surge of, you know, the population that just kind of increases. Mm -hmm. So naturally, there's going to be more people. And, you know, the working class is going to increase and, you know, Maybe the the business class or the elite class, you know, gets bigger, but it's not getting bigger at a quicker rate than the working class. Right. So the police started to, you know, spend time knocking down these riots, knocking down these these strikes, you know, for inequality. Mm -hmm. And that's how things were working really up in the north. But when you kind of looked over in the south, Mm -hmm. you kind of had this you had a similar system. And this is where people kind of start to say, oh, police started with slave patrols you start to see that slave patrols down south kind of had the same job and they were treating the the slaves like the working class was treated up north so you start to see that you know they a lot of these slave patrols is they would keep slaves you know on their land and if they ran away they drag them back and they would also be there to deter slave revolts right so the same way that you know police would be deterring a lot of the working class from striking up north, it's mm-hmm. the same thing down south. So now we're kind of like fast forwarding over to the Emancipation Proclamation and the freeing of the slaves. And from this time, you got a massive influx of, of slaves who are now free mm-hmm. and they need to make something of themselves, right? right? But in the south, their primary source of income, or at least they, they relied within their economy on slave labor, you know, this, this free labor. So... Within the 13th Amendment, it it states that, you know, no man will be, like, you know, considered or treated as a slave. But there's kind of like an asterisk, and, like, it refers to the fact that, you know, if you commit a crime and you're worthy of a punishment, mm-hmm. then you then it, it basically, it's all fair game at it's, that it's point. It's almost like the rules of slavery kind of apply to you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of like within it, they were kind of leaving, like, a loophole for the U.S. to use, you know, free labor, mm-hmm. right? That, that free labor was still going to be accessible for many. And, you know, as you can expect, after all the slaves were free, you also saw a massive influx of slaves being put into prison. And these prisoners were used for the same, like, basically the same free labor that the slaves once were. Right. So that that that's kind of where the concept of you know the chain gang came from, right? You saw all these people in black and white stripes, and you know, all chained together and like you know breaking down rocks. Like this was, in a way, finding. A method to enforce law and order mm. in a similar way that the you know policemen were were used by the upper class up north in the original municipal police departments in the earlier 1800s right right so this like so as you continue through their through the history of police officers you can see that they're constantly being used to maintain law and order mm-hmm. and that standard is being set by a special group of people right the people who are primarily benefiting off of these people staying where they need to stay. So fast forward again around civil rights movement and um, anti-war, so Vietnam, Mm -hmm. uh, Vietnam War protests and LGBTQ uh, movements. Around there, that's when you started to see a lot of violent reactions from from the police. Not to say that they weren't there prior, but you start to see, you know, these people really like these these policemen fight back. And, like, you know, they go to protests, and more often than not, it turns violent. A lot of people are dying Mm -hmm. at the hands of police officers. So, again, it just kind of reinstills this idea that they're meant to be there to 
maintain law and order right just like they were in their prior years and there was actually a book titled police administration around the 60s and that book actually became precedence for police uh, departments across the entire country and this book called for the quote-unquote professionalism of police and this is kind of where you start to see the militarization of police you know they started to have you know more weapons more you know, military-styled weapons, more of this, like, military-styled training. Well, it's not exactly military-styled training, but you start to see that sense of discipline right. be instilled in police officers, and this is kind of where that aggression started to come out, right? And mm-hmm. this is where, you know, they see all this, like, their funds and their budget goes up, and that's where it goes back to Nixon, right? Like, it goes back to Nixon and, and Reagan, and these were the same people that said that, you know, we need to take a frontal assault on the war on drugs. And then this is kind of where this intersect of maintaining law and order of the lower class and attacking the war on drugs. And you can see that intersection with racism. You can see where it all kind of culminates. And it's basically just layers and layers of issues Uh that weren't completely taken care of. It's kind of like we just kept putting a Band-Aid on the problem and kept putting a Band-Aid on what law and order meant until eventually it was kind of just whatever one person wanted to make it like if you if you truly wanted to maintain law and order Mm -hmm. or maintain what criminals were all you have to do is basically say that they're not following a social standard and then from there you know you change that social standard to become a legal standard right oh they're not following this legal standard right right? and i mean i guess like that's you could almost you know when you're thinking about the history of policing and the way you described it obviously yeah you could you could you could definitely see a connection with the way you know, protests are perceived today. I mm. mean, th- this is not me, you know, justifying any of the violent stuff that happens during protests, obviously, or any of the looting that, you know, we saw that, you know, like last month or, you know, the start of this month. But it- it's more of just this perception. You, c- you can tell, obviously, that this is perception that it will turn violent at some point. And yeah. you can see this in the way police officers, the policemen, or law enforcement tends to get involved before protests turn violent or anything like that. Like before mm-hmm. there's any disruption of like public peace there seems to be an expectation that it will you know it'll turn violent at some yeah. point and i guess yeah, of course and i guess that you know that goes back to what you're saying like their job has always been to maintain law and order so we perceive some things that are not necessarily as a you know like something that's not necessarily a crime and we perceive it in this negative light right like yeah not that i'm saying you know that you know, looting and all that stuff is amazing it's you not, know like, yeah. of course not like i get why that's wrong and i see why the argument for protests from people that don't like the concept of violence. I see, I see the, you know, and we, we address yeah. it, obviously. I don't need to get in depth about that. But it's just saying that even for those uh, protests that are not violent, even in the past, you've seen it, that there tends to be this expectation, you know, like I said, mm-hmm. that they, they're going to get violent at some point And just, that's just how law enforcement and the community, that's always been the relationship between the two yeah. since the beginning of law enforcement, you know? Yeah. And from the very beginning, you can even see that, the like you can you can from the very beginning you can see that the connection between the police police and you know handling issues within america mm-hmm. it, it hasn't been tied to the issue of crime itself because the definition of crime has evolved it right. absolutely has evolved Tremendously. but they've always intimately been tied to you know demands of an elite group of people and whether that was you know handling law and order whether that like and that thing is handling law and order then therein handles their business you know it's kind of like you know the ends justify the means in that sense okay it's kind of like you know if we have to control them like social control 
then turned into legal control. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah, because the yeah. same, like, I know, like, it, like, I didn't really mention this earlier, but when you looked at the businessmen that were controlling these worker protests, you know, early on, like, when they were back when it was, like, night watches, and then mm-hmm. eventually when it turned into, like, a municipal force, mm-hmm. in that time, businessmen were actually given, like, keys to police, like, alarm boxes. Like, they were actually given keys, like, because, like, ra- at random points in the city, there were, like, massive, like, you know, boxes that where you could, like, call police and whatnot, and these, like, certain, like, elite businessmen were given keys to so they could just go in, call the cops, and say, hey, where I'm having a workers' riot, you know, come down, you know, help me out here. So, like, from the very beginning, it was kind of tied to be this, you know, like, you're there to provide a somewhat service to a higher ups group of people, you know, in the original, it wasn't always meant to quote unquote protect and serve. Yeah. And I guess as, as times progressed, it's kind of like, kind of, I I guess you could say it has changed its narrative, Mm. but it still has its roots in this, you know, one group of people somewhat controls what I do. Right. And I mean, like you you were talking about it earlier, right. When you were speaking of how following the end to slavery, you know, and all these slaves were released and, you know, they Mm -hmm. were able to be free people. Mm -hmm. Um, there was there was definitely a surge in the number of people that were getting arrested, right? And yeah. that that part of that stems from the outcry from the people in the south, right? Like complaining about how their economy was crumbling because mm. there were no workers, right? Like free yeah. labor had had you know there was no more free labor, mm-hmm. and so like you're saying, there was kind of a loophole where prisoners could work. And and I know we we didn't really talk about this in depth, but we started to realize that some of the crimes that you know black people were getting arrested for were sort of not not necessarily the violent crime or like a crime you would expect but stuff like loitering right like yeah. that was considered to yeah. be one of the worst things ever right like you're mm. put you in shangles essentially take away your rights to be a citizen right yeah i mean and, and that's not to say that you know other crimes weren't no, committed of course right of like course obviously not. there were still black people um mm-hmm. a lot of slaves well former slaves i should say mm-hmm. who were you know, robbing. And I mean, right. when you think about it, I mean, what else, what other option was right, there? Right. Like, you know, like they were removed from slavery and it's not like they were given this massive stipend that said, Hey, here's like a hundred thousand dollars, go get yourself a nice little house. And then, you know, figure it out. Like, you know, it was kind of like, you know, you got out and that was the end of it. Figure it out yourself. You're right. not a citizen, but you're, you're a second class citizen, but like just figure it out. And then that's where like, you know, a lot of crime kind of, I guess, like surged up, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And you could even look at, you know, the criminalization of black people. It actually, you know, you could even like a good early example is the movie, I believe it was 1915 or 1916, one of the two. It was Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. And that was D.W. Griffin. So he made this movie and I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's like a three hour movie. But it essentially kind of, I guess, brings this sense of pride to the Confederate side of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, their reaction or it was, it was kind of like one of those, it's like the aftermath of what, you know, after freeing the slaves, what it looked like. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was a lot of actors walking around in blackface, um, quote unquote, I guess, chasing like these white women. And it was kind of like this narrative that black men were out to, you know, attack white women. Like they were extreme danger. And apparently there was even a, there's even a scene where a white woman jumps off a cliff. So she doesn't get, you know, like sexually assaulted, by a black man right so like it just it kind of like that's just an example of just like and, and in that movie you could also see you know there's a ku klux klan um there's a lot of representation of that group and mm-hmm. there's actually a resurgence of the ku klux klan 
after that movie. As a result of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. As a result of that movie, there was a lot of pride and it was a lot of like, okay, man, like they're like this, this group is a vigilante. Like, you know, they're meant to like restore order and like, you know, protect everyone from the wild mongrel, I guess, Negro that they called it. Uh That's what they called it. So, you know, from the, from this, I guess, at least if you even want to look at it from like, from that point, it was already being criminalized after they were slaves. They were like, they, it's not like in the movie they were saying like, you know, Oh, this guy's a slave. Like it's, they were stating that this African American, I guess, I don't even, I don't know if they even even call it this, but like human being, you know, is a danger to our society. So, so, Mm -hmm. so from the very beginning, it was already being criminalized. Right. And then that's when the Jim Crow laws came into play and then so on and so forth, all the way back up to the war on crime. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's it's all kind of been a slippery slope from, right. from yeah, in my opinion, yeah. the very beginning. The whole time, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's been great, obviously, just going back, following it through, you know, looking at the history and yeah. coming to, even when we're talking about the prison industrial complex and kind of understanding, you know, hearing from personal testimonies of other black, black people that have been incarcerated before. And it's like, one of the things, you know, that you and I were bothered by and we found out is this whole concept of what it means to be a convicted felon, right? Mm. And it's something that follows yeah. you literally for the rest of your life. You know, like mm-hmm. we look at you we look at the justice system as something that if you're guilty and you're convicted of a crime or whatever you go in, you serve your time, you know, depending on what it is. Like, obviously, there's some where you serve for the rest of your life. But in those situations where you serve your time and you come out, it's kind of like it's supposed to be a fresh start, right? Like we, we give people this idea or at least this idea is taught to us about how it's a fresh start. You get to, you know, reintegrate with society and hopefully make something of yourself. But, when yeah. the, you know, we're noticing that that, that really isn't the case. And oh, it's in yeah. multiple facets of life, not just the obvious ones. Like well, the first thing that came to my mind, right, was the whole thing with job applications, mm-hmm. right? And someone having to write that, yes, I've been a convicted felon. And it's like that you know takes away the opportunity of you getting a job yeah but like i know that one of the things that we were talking about was the whole thing with insurance yeah right yeah life insurance it's like you can't like apparently they ask you know are you a convicted felon on your life insurance like before you even apply and it's like to me that like that that's that's pretty problematic it's Mm -hmm. like i mean i understand you know where the concern comes from but like you you can't like life insurance is based on like they actually look at a lot of different facets of you know like your life and say like okay depending on like all these different factors how much would you need right so like, i guess convicted felons you'd probably look at them and think oh they must need more because i mean the chances of them like you know going back to jail or even dying is much higher than a normal individual so it's you're kind of looking at you know like why does why does this idea of being a felon trickle down into so many different parts of life and why is it that the rehabilitative side that the prison system claims to have Mm -hmm. for some strange reason follows you until the day you die like you could you could commit a felony at the age of 22 and you could be 45 you know turned your life around Mm -hmm. and you still have to say that you are a convicted felon right and it's and then then you want to start to look at you know maybe what these crimes are for what what circumstance did it come out of and i mean this is kind of where we, i think we looked at stuff like you know mandatory minimums and kind of like you know right, all these right. different things or i mean a, a, a great example is or i guess like a great example of the discrepancy when it comes to i guess the a higher class citizen and a lower class citizen is 
the whole mandatory minimums on crack cocaine and cocaine, like powder cocaine, mm-hmm. right? So within the 70s, I, I can't remember the exact name of the of the drug act, but like it essentially stated that, you know, an individual would get a five year mandatory minimum sentence for just five grams of crack cocaine. And for a person to for another person who had powder cocaine in order to get, you know, the mandatory minimum of five years, they would have to have 500 grams. And that's over a pound of powder cocaine. Like the, wow. the difference is just astonishing. And they're right. like, you know, why is it that someone and honestly that the reason why there was such a difference is because there was this common understanding that crack cocaine was in the lower class areas mm-hmm. and powder cocaine was for the higher ups for like, you know, those who weren't really in these low class circumstances. Right? Right, right. So, I mean, that's just one example of this massive difference that why is it that, you know, two different classes could do basically the same thing like crack cocaine and powder cocaine are basically the same thing right right but one you could get caught off the smallest circumstance like off the smallest amount not the smallest amount but you could get caught with a really small amount and you know be put behind bars for years and that mm-hmm. would ruin so many different things and like you know it would it would affect family life and i guess this is kind of where you can start to see you know the changes in how you know, families develop within the lower class, the lower classes and the upper class. Like, you know, you start mm-hmm. to see all these like, you know, if, if someone who had powder cocaine maybe had like, what, 10, 10 grams, like, you know, you're not going to get a mandatory minimum of five, five right. years. There's, there's just no way. Right. Right. Like just because of the numbers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, someone else who had five grams and, you know, they're in this, they're just walking around and they're in a lower class situation. Right. They're ripped from their families that already don't have this massive income right i guess i guess you know there's there's obviously like a disconnect and i guess that's the point we're trying to put across here right like the fact that since even even back then you know there was that disconnect between the way crime was perceived for one group of people versus the other you know like for Mm. for lower income people who tend to be and still are people of color in america you know there's more of like a tough you know, like a tough love when it comes to when it comes to crime. Whereas for the yeah. more elite, you know, potentially white people, it's it's a lot more relaxed. And I guess that's that's I know we we didn't plan on getting into this at all, but like just as a side note, I think that's where the whole discussion with marijuana comes into play, right? Like right now, we mm-hmm. know a lot of people are kind of speaking their mind about the fact that there are a lot of people of color that have been convicted of marijuana possession, right, and and yeah. are serving time in 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 prison right now. But we're also in a time where the business of growing and selling marijuana is very, very profitable. And yeah. you know, the few that are in it are, you know, enjoying the profits. And I guess, you know, I saw a lot of people talking about it, like Elon Musk even tweeted about it uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it's like, we got to resolve that issue. But it's it's not something that's hard today. You know, like it's not mm-hmm. a it's it's not a it's a common theme that we've been seeing, you know, yeah, whether it's it just be been, drugs, it, whether it's it be just whatever the crime it is. Like it, it's just it's just always existed. Right. Yeah. And I guess speaking about, you know, just crime in general and all that stuff, and the reason why we went into that, you know, and started thinking about it and did our research is because of this whole conversation we've been hearing, right? The soul defund the police conversation, right? Oh, yes. That's when it starts to get interesting, right? So, Oh, yeah. So just for those of you that, that don't know, and I knew about it. I know. I think we both knew about yeah, it. Yeah, no, We kind of put two and two together and try to make sense out of it. But when we first heard it, it, it sounded like a very 
radical idea, right? Like yeah. it sounded like something that was like out of this world, dude, never happen. I mean, even Ben and Jerry's posted about it. Oh, right. That had to be the funniest <laughs> explanation of what defunding the police looked like. And it was actually like ridiculously easy to understand. Too. Right, right. But so, you know, obviously more research is necessary. So We, we obviously were you know, we didn't think about how practical it was, right? Yeah. And, and not, you know, by me saying it's practical doesn't mean that we're all for it necessarily. Like, mm-hmm. of course, we'll get to the point where we discuss our opinions over it. But just so you know, practicality doesn't necessarily mean it ought to happen. All right. So yeah. anyway, the whole concept of it, the general concept of defining the police is this idea that we cut the budgets for police departments all across the United States. Yeah. And then take those funds and reallocate them to other departments in our social system right like our, our social services mm-hmm. and other sectors maybe like education um public health um housing youth services all that stuff yeah in a way to i guess combat some of the social issues we have like combat homelessness you know mm-hmm. in a way crime um people like help out people with mental illnesses in society help people with issues like drug addiction which we now consider to be a disease obviously right and that's that's basically it you know that that's basically what defining the police is it's not necessarily doing away with police or like cutting their budget to zero dollars and you know i was looking i was reading this and and you know black lives matter activists were talking about cutting the budget for the new york police department by a billion over the the course of four years Mm -hmm. and if you look at the total budget which i think is over four billion for new york specifically for new york the new york police department in it it, it makes sense, you know, like it, yeah. it, it makes sense to cut it slowly over the next couple of, you know, four years, whatever. Yeah. And that just opened it up for us, I guess. And we started looking in depth into the argument for defining the police and like what people have been saying about it and why they think it should happen. And we also looked mm-hmm. at the arguments against defining the police. So just to start off with the whole argument for defining the police, right? Apart from the fact that everyone thinks that the budget for well, not everyone, but the people that are like activists for it, obviously think that the budget for law enforcement in America is ridiculously huge. Like they think that it's enormous for no reason, right? Like we're talking a figure of something like $115 billion a year. Yeah, that's what for, I've seen that number floated around a right, lot. Yeah. Right, for like all the police departments, mm-hmm. which like of course a number on its own doesn't really, doesn't really say anything, but to give it any context, like it obviously dwarfs like any other department in, in yeah. the U.S. Like yeah. if we're looking at education, it, you know, that amount of money doesn't all go to education, right? Oh, absolutely not. So apart from that, um, people are arguing that if if defunding the police actually ends up happening, it might help combat some of the over reliance that our communities have on the on the police departments, right? And what that means is, a lot of the times when cops are, are called to a situation like when you dial nine one one and they respond, for the most part, it's not necessarily for violent crimes or like situations where a weapon is involved or like someone is in real danger right it's more of smaller incidents you know like i i was reading this and some other retired police officer was talking about how during his time in his police department he would get called for something as small as like a pothole or a cat stuck in a tree and i think this is this is true obviously more for the rural parts of america rather than you know urban urban cities like urban areas i mean there's no need to debate that that's obvious right Mm -hmm. but just the fact that these departments still get funding for stuff like weapons that they almost never used. And so the argument is that, you know, by cutting their budgets, they can, I guess, focus on the more violent crimes and not spend time worrying about the kind of incidents and the kind of calls that they get where it can be handled by like another, you know, social service group 
within our society right Mm-hmm. And of course, that argument has a double side to it. Of course, you know we're talking mm-hmm. to you know we already spoke about how you and I were talking about how uh, the Minneapolis Police Department already issued a statement saying that from now on they're gonna be having some other departments, you know, in their social service of Minneapolis, whatever, handle some of the nine one one calls when they're when they're you know tied to people that are either drug users people that are like homeless like people that have these social issues like yeah you know mental illness right instead of calling a cop to the scene like first responders could be someone who knows how to handle people who are suffering from these things because they have the experience rather than a police officer right so there's that whole argument that the more funding we take away from the police departments the more money we will have so said organizations that can assist the cops in handling disputes within our community right mm-hmm the other thing that people have been talking about as far as defunding the, the police is that his, in the past, more funding has not led to more violent crimes being solved. And so there's this argument that we've just been wasting the budget by increasing the funding to police departments and there hasn't been any results, I guess, from that increase in, in, in the budgets. And like obviously like we, we, there are discrepancies. You know, When we start talking about statistics as far as how many violent crimes are solved, there's a racial discrepancy there, and we, we, we've seen historically that there are more cases that are solved in, as a percentage where the the white person is a victim rather than when the black person is a victim. Yeah. But, you know, that's like an argument for, for a whole other day. We're not <laughs> yeah. going to get into that. We're just going to say that there's been talk that more funding has not led to an increase in solving violent crimes, and so we ought to cut the budget and, like, reinvest that money elsewhere, right? The other thing that people have been talking about, and I know we addressed this a little bit last last episode when we came to the portion of talking about solutions, and I know part of one of the solutions that we had was something to do with like training and and police reform in that sense. Mm-hmm. And there's like an argument right now that police reform in the past hasn't proven to be helpful. And the prime example that people use is the whole idea of body cams for police officers, right? Like when they're handling any any sort of like interaction with with um with like people, right? And the argument there is that after the introduction of body cameras, there was literally like zero change in the number of cases where there there was reported police brutality or an excessive use of force. So it's kind of like it didn't it didn't stop the police officers from acting a particular way. It didn't impact their behavior whatsoever. So that's that huge thing. And I guess that's why people are are kind of pushing for a more extreme solution, I suppose, or a more radical, whichever word you want to choose to use there. Yeah, but it's it's stemming from this idea that police reform in the past hasn't been helpful, at least not in the recent years. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of the a lot of the people have been asking, you know, like asking questions like, "Well, have we seen it work before?" And apparently, we have. Apparently, there's a oh. there's a place in New Jersey. It's called Camden, Camden, New Jersey. Yeah, they successfully dissolved the police department and changed it and started like a community service focused department to replace the work of the police. And this department, in terms of the number of people, I guess, that are working is larger than the police department, mm-hmm. but they they've seen a change in the way crime is handled in within the area, and the relationship between the community and I guess these new law enforcers is a lot better than it was in the past with the regular police, right? Oh, okay. And this is all like you know the whole argument of defining the police yeah. is this belief that crime will go down mm-hmm. if the funds are reinvested in another sector like education. Yeah. Um. And bettering poor communities that are historically black communities, but you know the connection between more education and a decline in, in crime is something that 
we're well educated on. Every everybody kind of knows that yeah. that whole connection, and it, and it comes from this idea that the more educated you are, the better opportunities you'll have, so the more chances you get an income. So why commit a crime, right? Like that's yeah, that's, that's like the whole understanding of it. So that that's yeah. what that's what people think. Now the arguments against defunding, and these are very interesting, you know, because these are my opinions tries to kick in, but I'll try and keep it factual no, until we do. get to the end, right? Yeah, please do. <laughs> so. A lot of people that are arguing that we shouldn't defund the police kind of have this idea that defunding actually actually means to abolish the police, but that those are two separate arguments. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, people that speak about a lot of people that are talking about how like why it's a bad idea to defund the police and are kind of against it is because they say you know this whole abolishing police is impra- is not practical and it'll risk the majority of the people that are for the idea and the other ones who need police the most right yeah so it's kind of speaking to this whole idea that black lives matter activists you know are mostly people that are black and therefore le- live in these like poor communities right mm-hmm. and so they need police officers more because that's where there's the most amount of crime so it's kind of like a people uh, in a way they're kind of speaking for the black community in that way you know like saying wouldn't yeah. you want police more because you guys have the crime but like of course not trying to say there's the the different sides to this but it's just that those are some of the arguments that i've been noticing yeah and i guess in a way if you look at it it makes sense to say the people that need law enforcers i guess to prevent crime mm-hmm. shouldn't be the ones that are like tr- speaking to do away with the police but okay that's just the argument anyway mm-hmm. and then the other thing that they've been saying is that the data suggesting the failure of previous police reform is not actually accurate oh, okay and that's the whole situation like we're talking about the body cams and they're saying there was mm-hmm. no there was actually no evidence to point to the fact that it's the introduction of body cams has zero effect on you know the number of cases that are coming in for police brutality and excessive use of force yeah and they argue that because apparently it wasn't until 2015 when there was a push for a way f- for this level of accountability within the police department right like, yeah. all across the nation Mm-hmm. And there was really no way to collect the data to see some of these things and like have these sort of statistics that we see today yeah. until about 2018 when the FBI established a way of kind of consolidating that data from all police departments and coming up with a comprehensive layout of what what each statistic meant. Right. Mm-hmm. And I guess the first month that this sort of data was actually collected was January 2019 to so the previous claims that police reform in the past hasn't helped seem to be. Com- yeah, they, they're not coming from any factual evidence or any factual backing as it appears. Okay. But they also say on the side that, <laughs> you know, certain reforms cannot yield immediate result, you know. So I guess that's speaking to this expectation that we res- we spoke about last week, this instant gratification, right? Yeah. That people are expecting some of the stuff. People expect some of the things to, to happen if the laws pass today to have an immediate impact on the police department and, mm-hmm. and the way they handle cases, but they're saying it's not the case and you ought to wait a few more years. So speaking back to that whole body cam thing, mm-hmm. there's kind of this um, underlying argument that it's still too early to know if it has had an impact. I mean, easier said than done. I obviously. mean, of course, right. Like, <laughs> I mean, when you kind of see, uh, when you're seeing people die in this manner, mm-hmm. it's way easier to say, just wait a little longer for the numbers to come out than, Right. Then it actually sounds like it's and I think what's uncomfortable or at least something that I, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but 
part of me, as, as I look at these cases, you're kind of noticing that, or at least especially with George Floyd, like you're looking at the quote unquote crime that he committed, you know, it was, it wasn't violent right in any way shape or form right you know even if the guy was high or on drug like that it doesn't it that does not justify right dying in police custody so mm-hmm. like i mean I, you kind of notice that a lot of the in a lot of these situations or for example trayvon martin right mm-hmm. he died by the hand of a neighborhood watch and a neighborhood watch that followed him throughout the entire neighborhood and felt as though he was a threat, engaged himself with Trayvon, and ended up shooting and killing him, right? Right. And you look at that, and you're thinking, okay, all the arguments that I I'm, that I remember were made was that, oh, he must have done something to Zimmerman. He must have. Like, mm-hmm. he must have put his hand in his pocket or whatever. And I'm like, since when is putting your hand in your pocket dangerous? Right. The guy just came back from the corner store with Skittles and Arizona. Like, it's since when was that, like, you know... Like why why is that considered so dangerous? Right. But I understand, you know, circumstances, it's a little different, so uh-huh. I'll give you that. So I mean, at least in those situations or it it sounds so awful to say, but in those situations you hear people making the argument of, you know, he must have done something violent. Right. And part of you this is gonna sound really insensitive. I would rather you have made that argument than look and say that what Derek Chavon did was justified. You know, what he did in that situation, there was no, like, there's just, right. there's not a single reason in the entire world where that's reasonable. There's right. not a single reason of why Oscar Grant got shot in the back right. in a San Francisco police, like, like, train station. Like, there's right. a lot of the, there's no reason that, you know, a lot of these individuals have died. Elijah McCain, like, McLean, he, there was no reason for him to die. Right. But it was... It was a lot more of this, you know, like looking forward image of this kind of like, oh, like I'm preventing something or I'm like, you know, Mm. I'm trying to deter. Oh, excuse me. I'm trying to deter this individual from doing something, you know, like it's right. I would have rather you have used that excuse that they were somehow violent than, you know, they weren't doing anything entirely. Right. And I think I think that's now that we're talking about that. I feel I can finally share my whole opinion on this whole defund the police thing. Right. But like. Part of the reason why, and, and, and I think it's great, you know, like I spoke earlier about the practicality of the whole thing, and I thought it was a, a lot more radical when I first heard it, but now that I, I've seen it, it, it seems like it's a pretty good idea. You know, like in my yeah. in my opinion, I think we should at least move forward with the first steps and see where it goes. Like, obviously, we've got a few police departments all across the country that yeah. have already started implementing this kind of, you know, concept, and, and, and you know, we'll see within the next few months what kind of impact it has. But I think more and more of these police departments, especially in these urban uh, settings where, you know, they're running into these issues of police brutality and excessive use of force, I think they should try it out, obviously. But my only thing was that it seems, though, the more we speak about the whole defining the police concept, we maybe are shifting from the idea of, of, you know, the fact that some of these guys aren't necessarily committing the crime. Like, I think we're focusing on trying to educate the black community and educate black individuals or educate our people so they are more educated and don't have to resort to crime and that way don't get into altercations with police and end up dead but we're seeming to ignore the fact that for some of the people that you know you're naming off of that list that ended up dying in police custody or at the hands of the police weren't committing any sort of crime you know like even even as broad as the definition has become in the 21st century today yeah even as broad as that definition has become you can still look at these people and they're not committing any crime you know so it's like 
we're kind of turning a blind eye to that sort of police brutality where it's completely unwarranted and we're sort of shifting it to i guess victim blaming in this sense and looking at that at you know oh like they committed some sort of crime so i guess let's educate them let's teach them let's give them opportunities so they don't have to perform you know commit those crimes but it's like yeah but not all of them died that way yeah and it's this idea that like you know they i've heard a lot of people argue and say Mm -hmm. oh then you know when a cop tells you to do something you do it and it's like what like i like even if it's like even if like they're not doing anything like it's it that that seems absurd to me like Mm -hmm. what a cop says if what a cop says is there in and of itself law Mm -hmm. then that just go like that ties all the way back to the fact that they're meant to be the judge juries and apparently executioners right of law and order and to me that's just not okay mm-hmm. like that's not okay to put all of that power in one individual in one circumstance like i'm like there's not this it, it just seems i guess like too much responsibility for a single person and for, for a person who a lot of people claim, like, you know, are supposed to be embedded in our communities and make these connections with the community, why is it that it, with the like, with the flip of a switch, they can all of a sudden decide someone's fate of life and death? Right. And all they have to say is, it right. was at my discretion. And right. it's like, I, I think that you're, you're dancing, you're not even dancing a fine line, you're just stomping all over it. Like, you're just, it's, it's not even a gray area anymore. It's just diving off the deep end and then just kind of giving you some random justifications or reasons of why it happened. Right. So, I mean, I guess that that's my personal take. I mean, I I think the whole defunding the police, I don't quite see many. I personally think it should happen on a, you know, a fluctuating base. Like, you know, you kind of, I guess if you were to really monitor a specific police department and the resources they use that are completely actually ended up being used and the ones that, you know, aren't used, I think changing the budget based off of that research for the next two, three years might help. Right. You know, you look at certain areas and it's like they have never, like this one officer has never used an, an assault rifle before in his life, but you know, he has one in the back with his name on it. So like, it's like, eventually he's going to need it. And it's, you know, with, with all that kind of, I guess, leftover and like, you know, all that extra funding lying around, uh-huh. you get antsy, you know, eventually you're going to want to use it. Right. So it's, I mean, I, I'm okay with the, the the idea of you know defunding the police is just it's gonna need a lot of you know hoops and you know right like there's obviously more than through. just there's obviously more than at least I hope there's more than just you know the stuff that we covered as far as just yeah. the reallocation of funds like I think it's also important that we still focus on whatever's left over with uh, yeah with with you know in the police departments and. But I guess yeah, I, I think I think that's it for, for yeah. this week. I think that's all I we mean, have for you guys. I I kind of hope you guys are happy that we kept it under an hour fifteen. <laughs> um, this was a true concerted effort to try to you know shorten it a little bit. But you know, I hope you guys have a good week. I hope you guys learned something because I know I know we learned a few things here. So yeah, I'll catch you guys next week. Have a good one.